Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 2nd, 2020, and this is episode 2631 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday, but we're staying off the regularly scheduled programming. Um, we're going to do a show today called The New Look at Backyard Livestock. Yesterday we talked about uh, keeping a dairy cow, and specifically many jerseys was what our, our guest recommended. And that's something a lot of people would like to do, but a lot of people don't have the space even for a miniature dairy cow. Because as we talked about yesterday, um, a dairy cow, even a miniature one, is quite a large animal and has some pretty specific requirements. I do think if you have the space, keeping a cow is way easier than keeping a few goats. I, I, I will say that. But cows do have unique challenges. There's a lot of livestock that can provide meat and eggs and do a lot of other function for us. Um, besides big stuff and ruminants. Uh, specifically today, what I'm going to be talking about um, are chickens, uh, ducks, quail, rabbits, pigeons, turkeys, and fish. And then, you know, there's some other stuff we could throw in there that we don't think of as livestock, but it really is. A worm farm is, is a form of backyard livestock. Bees our form of backyard livestock, but I'm really not going to talk about those today. These, these ones I'm going to talk about today have a, a long history, some in the United States, some in other parts of the world, of being things that regular, everyday people, one way or another, provided husbandry for and therefore received a yield in return for. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're also going to talk really briefly about COVID. I'm not going to go through... Uh, all the justification for hydro hydroxychloroquine, again, I've done that way too many times now to keep taking 20 minutes a show to put into it. Nor am I going to go through everything that um, I've covered on zinc and Q-certain and green tea extract as an over-the-counter uh, preventative and maybe mitigation uh, of, of COVID. Uh, I did screw up in the email yesterday, and the link that I sent out for my live feed uh, video from Facebook from that segment of the show only yesterday uh, was the wrong link. Uh, but if you go to my Facebook, you could have found it. I have the right link in the email that will go out today, and I have the right link in today's show notes. I have all of the resources in today's show notes um, for uh, the justification for hydroxychloroquine and for the over-the-counter remedy that I recommend uh, because it can't hurt and it might help. Right. I'm not saying it cures anything. I don't do that. I'm not going to club fed. It ain't happening. Um, I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. I'm not a natural health practitioner. I'm just a guy that can do some research and put some stuff together. However, what I've recommended has been endorsed now by multiple infectious disease doctors and multiple scientists. And so if you want to know more about that, I invite you to go look at that video. If you get on the Daily Mail, which you just go to the survivalpodcast.com and subscribe to, you'll be on the Daily Mail. Um, you get links like this all the time. I do want to play something for you. And I find this ironic. Um, about a week and a half ago, Laura Ingram uh, brought a doctor on who basically said wonderful things about hydroxychloroquine. And he was an oncologist at a specific hospital in New York. 
And people felt that the way that that was presented indicated that he was speaking on behalf of the hospital and doctors directly treating patients with hydroxychloroquine. He was doing neither, and I don't really think it came across that way. But because of this pushback, Orange Man, Bad, etc., on hydroxychloroquine, that segment, she had to take down off, she had it online in addition to being broadcast, had to take it down. Well, last night, Laura had another guy on. And I'm not actually a huge Laura Ingram fan. And those of you who know me, I'm not a giant Donald Trump fan. Though I think that we're going to have to owe Donald Trump an acknowledgement that he saved a lot of lives by forcing this through. Because I feel like Trump's the one that forced this through. I feel like there's still resistance and it's stupid. This doctor here in the United States, he's one of the most uh, preeminent doctors in the United States has been treating his patients with hydroxychloroquine and zithromycin. He's had zero intubations, and at least a preliminary look at the numbers indicate that the odds of that with the number of patients he's treated would be something like .000 something. Not sure yet, but you get it. It's pretty infinitesimally low that the number of patients he had, he would have had zero intubations because these are not asymptomatic people. These are people that need treatment in a hospital. If we can keep people off ventilators, we can change the entire calculus on this thing. If we can keep 10% of people that were going on ventilators off ventilators, we can change the entire calculus. If we can keep 50% off, everything changes. If we can keep most people, 80, 90% of people that would have to have gone on a ventilator off a ventilator, then this, this goes back to being a lot more like the flu as far as a death rate. It's not that, it's not extreme to say that. And again, some people can't take it. And I'll tell you, there's people, if you have a heart arrhythmia problems, um, one of the side effects of zithromycin is exasperating or causing that. So it would, if somebody's going to go on both of those, it would be a good idea for them to have an EKG. I have that from a pharmacy tech who's been in the business a long time, that that's a side effect of the drug. And a lot of times, pharmacy, or not a pharmacy tech, a pharmacist, a licensed pharmacist, a lot of times pharmacists tend to know more about the drugs themselves than doctors do, especially with the myriad of drugs that there are. And that's from him. And, you know, I think it's a reasonable precaution since we can do a medical-grade EKG with a $100 attachment to an iPhone. Right? This is not an impediment to being able to make sure that people can have both. Um, though I do think there's a big case for people that are just diagnosed, that are mildly symptomatic, they probably don't need the zithromycin. At least they don't need it initially. You could start the, the chloroquine and then add the zithromycin if symptoms continue to progress. But again, you're talking about it. Now, I want you to hear this. Now, I'm going to tell you some disclosure. This man was being interviewed by Laura Ingram over Skype. And so there were pauses and, and stuff like that. And I'm just going to say that I took that out. I didn't take out a word that either person said, but if someone were to listen to my recording I'm about to play for you and listen to the original, you would notice that one is shorter than the other. I believe in full disclosure, but I believe if you did a verbal transcript of this call, uh, you would not hear a single word altered. But I, I did take out space and static to make the call more listenable. I'm going to play it for you now, and I'm going to go on and talk about our main subject today and after we talk about our quote of the day as well. Um, but this is very good news, and, and I want you to particularly pay attention to what this doctor, again, who is, this is not some dude blogging on Medium. This is a preeminent physician in the United States who's been treating real people that really have COVID in a real hospital with real medication getting real results. Listen to his final 
statement especially. It's a little less than two minutes long. Extremely important news that we're breaking tonight on the Ingram angle. Dr. Smith, one of the most uh, preeminent infectious disease specialists in the United States. His father was a legend. But Dr. Smith, um, you pointed out that not a single patient of yours, COVID patient, uh, that has been on the hydroxy regimen has had to be intubated. For people who don't know what intubated means, please explain quickly. Yeah, so uh, intubated means you're respiratory, you're in respiratory failure and you have to be put on a ventilator. Intubation means actually putting the tube down into your trachea and then you're placed on a ventilator for support, respiratory support. We've had, uh, I mentioned, the 20 intubations. Over most all of them occurred in the first two days. More importantly, no person has received five days or more of the hydroxychloroquine and zithro combination has been intubated. The chance of that occurring by chance, according to my sons, Leon and Hunter, who did some stats for me, are 0.000 something. It's, it's ridiculously low depending on how you look at it. Yeah. It's ridiculously low no matter how you look at it. Um, we worry about selection bias in this situation, but I cannot think of a reason why. If all else is equal, why people that have received five days or more, even four days or more, of uh, this hydroxychloroquine azithro regimen wouldn't get intubated. If, in other words, if the regimen didn't work, why would it just be the people that didn't get nearly completed, nearly complete the regimen? Most of the people were in the first two days. All right, Dr. So Smith, it, we're going to have you. We're going to have you back. Yeah, we're. It's a, it's a game changer, correct? It's a game. It's absolute game changer. I think these data go to really support the French data. Now you actually have an intra cohort comparison saying that this regimen works. And I'll get some real statisticians besides yeah. uh, my sons to look at that. Dr. Smith, thank you for all the work. You and I you and I and our medicine cabinet of, of folks and all Laura, your colleagues, uh, Laura, thank you. I, I, Laura, I think this is the beginning of the end of the pandemic. I'm very serious. Oh, wow. This is unbelievable. Well, Dr. Smith, all the naysayers and the dis people dismissing this. Now, the only thing I want to add to that to temper this, beginning of the end is not the end. I think you're still going to see a lot of people die in the next several weeks. Uh, sadly, I think some people will die that don't have to. I know for a fact there are doctors who are using hydroxychloroquine and zithromycin on patients in hospitals against their will right now. They're basically being told, you're doing this. And they don't like it because it doesn't match what they've been trained to do. There's not a special stamp. It doesn't say there's a million studies, whatever. And there are even some doctors that I know for a fact that are resistant to this while their patients are getting better. We're learning something about how screwed up our medical system is, and that leads into our um, quote of the day as well here in a second. But I think that the kind of the wheels are coming off of this now, and the production is actually getting out into the world. Right, like I've said, the one thing I've been able to say just a little bit of defense of the system here is they don't want to run on things because there's a shortage. Well, the first batches have been delivered of the new production. They're making a million doses a day right now from one manufacturer. There's three manufacturers making as much as they can. Again, I have contacts inside some of these companies, one in particular that I broke all of this information before anybody else did for you. And this is what that contact told me last night. This is verbatim from a text. There's nothing here that gives away who he is, so I can give you this information. Uh, again, I'm very protective of my sources. That's how I have them. Uh, here's what he said, though. This is word for word, as was written to me. We are moving product as fast as we can. I don't know the true number of do doses out the door, but we are upping the batch sizes for each batch. 
The first lot of product was distributed last week, and we have several more lots at a warehouse waiting for final testing to be done. That's just, again, one company out of several that are making this. And, and this same contact basically told me at one point in all of this, basically the FDA is kissing their ass when usually they're up their ass. So they know what's up. And the FDA has announced now a shortage of this medication. It's not a few trials, folks. It's not a few trials. They're trying to keep a lid on this. There are hundreds of doctors. I know this for a fact, too, from a different source. Hundreds of doctors and nurses in New York City right now as part of a trial, and boy, I wish I was on video for the air quotes I'm making of this trial, um, of taking hydroxychloroquine without the zithromycin, just the hydroxychloroquine in a prophylactic dose um, to prevent infection. I believe as the number of doses that become available go up, this will end up being almost all first-line people in the medical industry treating people will be on this. It won't be long after that that a lot of the police departments uh, in major areas where you have clusters will be on this as a prophylactic. And I believe that somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe two weeks, it's going to be a standard treatment for anybody diagnosed who can take the medication without risk, If the medication is available and they are symptomatic, give it to them. And it will be the greatest surplus of, if they do it, it will be the greatest surplus of ventilators that, that's ever been seen. These millions of ventilators we're supposed to need, we will not need them. And we need to do this beyond just because it works. Um, one thing you need to understand about all these ventilators. What the doctors are saying is most of these people that go on a ventilator, they go on there for 30 days and they die. Or they go on there for a week and they die. Most of the people, once they're intubated, do not come back. They save some. But once you go there, you continue to deteriorate. That's direct quotes from doctors as well. This is the game changer. I don't care if you hate the orange man. I don't care if it burns your, your tongue to admit it, that this works. Because he said it first. I'm saying this works and we know it works. And I'm, I'm going to say something else. And I really want you to understand me when I say this. We've not known this works for a couple weeks. We've known this works for several months. We've actually known this has worked for years. We didn't know specifically COVID-19, but we have known that hydroxychloroquine, additionally as a as an ionophore for zinc, getting zinc into the cells, and what it does directly against coronatite viruses is an effective treatment for coronatite viruses. We have known this. This is not something that was unknown. It was not maybe readily medically accepted. No, we didn't have you know three years worth of trials or whatever, but again, we're seeing the problem with our system. We have something that's more than 70 years old. I've got to stop. I'm doing it again. I just I cannot shut up about this. I cannot stop talking about this because I know that at least one person in this audience or their family member, before this just is something they're doing, is going to be symptomatic with this is going to be having serious complications with this, but we don't know if you're going to really go over yet. And they're going to say, I want this, and they're going to demand this, and at least one person's life will be saved because I won't shut up about this. So you're damn right I won't shut up about it. But let's, let's move on to happier things. Quote of the day, which feeds back into this and bridges us into what we're about to talk about. Bill Mollison, one of my favorite people in the world, one of my greatest mentors who I've never met, uh, passed away a few years ago. He said something about problems in the world. He said, though the problems of the world are increasingly complex, the solutions were made embarrassingly simple. 
on COVID and hydroxychloroquine, you couldn't come up with a better quote to explain that situation. We know it works. We just don't know how well and for how many people. But we know it works pretty good for most people. We should be using it. It's a simple solution. We know it's safe because we don't know the long-term consequences. Guess what the long-term consequences of death are? Guess what the long-term consequences of permanent lung damage after 30 days on a respirator are? We know those. We know whatever the long-term consequences of taking uh, hydroxychloroquine for 10 days, 15 days, when a lupus patient takes that same dose their entire life, we know they're less. But let's talk about how this, this feeds into today's subject of keeping backyard livestock, like chickens and ducks and rabbits. What problem do we have right now? What's one of our biggest problems right now? Is the availability of food. It's also the need that people have, even where they can get food, to go to a place with a whole shitload of people and be exposed while we're supposed to be supposedly under a quarantine. Even though it's, we're not under quarantine anywhere in the United States, by the way. That's not what a quarantine is. You go in your house, you stay in your house, you do not come out of the door. A quarantine is to the point where the government starts having trucks roll in and feeding you with a stick across a barricade. That's what they did in Wuhan. That's a quarantine. What we are under is basically stay-at-home order, but if you want to go to the grocery store, you can. One of the problems with that is the pressure on the grocery stores. Another problem with that, though, is so now you're in a grocery store with a couple thousand people or even a few hundred people. We can't have groups of more than two people. There's 200 people in Walmart at one time plus another hundred employees. If we distribute our food system, we can change things. I also want you to think about, I, I believe that we are going to see a move back toward a, a more decentralized society. And, and keeping livestock is one form of decentralization. Instead of Tyson having all the chickens in one place, the chickens exist throughout the country. Now that doesn't mean Tyson or you know Purdue or anybody's going to go away. But I think we'll see more and more a movement toward decentralization and depopulation of some of these incredibly dense areas. People have asked me, you know, don't you think DFW is going to have something similar to New York City as far as the infection and death rate? Uh, because you guys have 7.6 million people in DFW? No, I don't. No, I don't. I think we'll have a, a, we're going to have more here than they're going to have in South Dakota because we have more people. But here we have something like 7.2 million people, um, and I don't remember the exact number of square miles that DFW has, but it's over 9,000. You can look it up if you want to, but I think it's like 9286, seems like right from yesterday when I looked it up, 9,200 square miles in Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, New York City has a population of over 8 million people that swells to 18 million people uh, during the day on normal course of business with tourists and people that work in the city but don't live there, etc. And, and that number of people is, in, is squeezed into 302 square miles. I do remember that number, 302. Because actually, I, it, was, it was startling for me. I thought it was probably more than that. 302 square miles... 8 million people with swells up to 18 million. That's centralization, folks. That's See, all the modern planners, the Green New Deal people, all of these people that think they're saving the planet or whatever, they want to cram as many people as they can into as small a footprint as possible. And if you look at utility usage and things like that, you can, you can make a case for it. 
But when you, as soon as you add something like the fact that humans get sick, boy, that breaks down really quick. And as soon as you get you, you get into a point where humans um, have needs beyond being fed and clothed and have a roof over their head, they have a need for recreation, they have a need for open space. That really falls apart too. And when you add a need for decentralization, so that if one place is screwed up, it doesn't take out everybody else. I mean, people are learning that about imports right now. I don't, I don't see the day that we stop importing trinkets and plastic gadgets and stuff from China. I don't think we really want to make them in America. We might start buying them from, you know, we might start doing manufacturing in places other than China for stuff like that, uh, but China too. But I mean, when it comes to steel, medicine, medical equipment. Like, if you're getting your, your medical equipment, your steel, your building materials, etc., from a country that is not totally friendly to you, you're kind of stupid. Imagine if we went to war with China, especially if they aligned with Russia, at any time uh, leading up till now, even without COVID, and they just said, no steel for you, no medicine for you, no, you know. None of, none of the stuff that you rely on us for. Well, obviously, if we're at war, we're not going to give you that stuff. We're not going to sell it to you so that you can use it to fight us. We're not stupid. And I'm not saying that it's likely that we're going to go to war with China or that has directly anything to do with backyard livestock, but the whole concept we have to start thinking about here is the fact that putting all those eggs in one basket is a bad idea. And it fits into what we're talking about today. So let's talk about... Backyard livestock, and let's just go through some of the, the more popular ones and some things to consider You know, if you want to get them and have them and make them part of, of what you do. I think for a lot of people, the thing that to look to first is probably chickens. They don't come without their problems, though. So I want to start out with what problems chickens cause if they're not controlled. And the number one problem chickens cause is scratching. And so, for instance, we don't keep a lot of chickens here. We keep some little bantams, and that's I've found them to be a totally different bird than, than grown-up chicken. Little bantams are like little pets. They lay little eggs. They're sweet. They're gentle. They follow you around like cats. And they, they scratch some, but they just don't destroy things. And I've even found, like, the garden beds that I have, that you know, I, my, I build my garden beds up about 24 inches minimum of height or higher from the ground level. Well, when I had big chickens, they would just jump up in there. The bantams don't even get up in there. So that would be something to mitigate this, but you have to think about the fact if you have chickens, they are if you do not control them, they are going to find the one place you don't want dug up and they're going to dig it up. The berms that I built out here, they have trees in, the first thing chickens would do would run to the end of that berm and pull the end off and expose the roof to the tree and kill it. That's what happened all the time. So that doesn't mean don't have chickens. It means you need a method of control, whether it's a chicken tractor, whether it's a coop and run. And I think for a lot of people, I, I don't care what Paul Wheaton says about chickens. I'm sorry. I just think the guy's gone over the deep end with, you know, like it's evil to keep a chicken in a coop and run. Um, our grandparents, and I mean all of our grandparents, my grandparents especially, kept chickens in coop and run. My grandparents had a coop with two runs. And... They planted their corn in one of the runs every year. So they had a big garden independent of that coop and run system. But since there was so much nitrogen, they would plant their corn. They'd plant an early corn crop, 
And then they would go in behind that corn as it was starting to get ready to be harvested and all, and they would plant things like uh, winter squash and stuff as well. Kind of Three Sisters-ish, but no beans. Maybe they just didn't know about that. And, you know, that would give us a pretty good corn yield every year. And then the next year, they would just cut all the corn down, and let as soon as the, they were done growing for that season... They would let the birds into that side and let them process everything, and then next spring they would grow another corn crop on the other run. That's one way to do things, and it doesn't have to be just a corn crop. I'm just saying that's what my grandparents did. And those birds even got to come out in free range, and they didn't really damage the garden very much because they were well-fed. They had that, that run. We brought all, every, every weed, anything that didn't, You know, that was an organic piece of material that a chicken would process went into that run. And the way that they were controlled, and they were remarkably not a problem with the rest of the garden, was they were only let out to free range for about an hour before dark. And, and they were let out only when there was a lot of grass and forage and bugs and stuff like that. So if, if it was a time that was pretty sparse, we didn't let them out. They were also let out with impunity before the gardening started. Let them go in the garden then. So you got to kind of think about all that. And that property wasn't even fenced. We had neighbors there. Them birds never left the damn property. It was the craziest thing. And I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying that it can be done. But you need some method of control because chickens scratch and chickens shit. So the other problem you can have is with chickens up on the porch. We had a bird dog. And they always had dogs, and the dogs were taught chickens are not allowed on the porch. How do you think I, why do you think I trained my dogs that way? Ducks are not allowed on the porch. And the dogs just push the chickens and ducks off the porch, and after a while they're like, eh, you know what, we don't go on the porch. Porch is bad. Big scary wolf-looking thing is up on the porch. So you have to come up with a solution for that. What chickens give back, though, is number one, and my grandparents didn't know about this, they just processed with chickens for that one crop in place, But I build um, pits now out of cinder blocks, and I throw all our compostables in there, and the little chickens and the ducks go in and they compost. And when that's full and it just they're kind of losing interest in it, I just build another pit and start filling it up, throw a tarp over the one, and wait six months. And it's the most beautiful work-free compost you've ever seen in your life, and it grows food like crazy. Obviously eggs. Chicken eggs are very high yield relative to the amount of feed that you give birds, especially if you can grow some of their food, free range, chicken tractor, whatever. Um, and the quality compared to the store is immediately obvious. If you're feeding especially a high-quality feed, uh, we feed a, a peanut meal-based feed made by a company called Texas, uh, Texas Naturals. And the quality of our eggs, both chicken and duck, are unbelievable between that feed and their wild forage. Uh, meat. Chickens are not a great meat animal unless you're raising a meat chicken. Yesterday, our guest noted that I have often said if something is dual purpose, it excels at neither. And he was talking about how his, his Jersey cows, they really are pretty damn good as a dual purpose as both meat and for milk. I acknowledge that. And, and I don't say, and I, that's why I, when I say things, I tend to seldom speak in absolutes. If something is dual purpose, it generally excels at neither. Generally does not mean absolutely, right? So there's a break. Chickens, it's pretty much the case. There are some okay dual breeds, Delawares, uh, Cornish Rocks. They're okay. 
But the best meat chicken is either your heritage meat birds, like your Red Rangers, your heritage whites, or your good old-fashioned Cornish cross. The ones that all the giant chicken farms raise, that they make a great chicken for me. So if you want to raise meat chickens, that's probably the best way to go. All the other birds, you never get as much meat from them, and they take a lot longer to grow out. That said, any chicken is edible. Any chicken's edible and it's probably got more meat on it than a pheasant. In fact, I would say I butchered a whole bunch of um, cockerel um, Egyptian faomis. They were probably the smallest domestic chicken that wasn't a bantam I've ever butchered. And they were about like pheasants. And I walked a lot of miles to shoot pheasants. So the thing with chickens is with a good incubator, like the Incuview incubator, and I'll put a link in the show notes for that sucker, um, I've had hatch rates of near 100%. They're really easy to brood once you're set up to brood them. That, that means taking babies to adults. And so right now if I had a bunch of you know Rhode Island Reds or something like that, and I just wanted some chicken, I, you know, you're looking at, what, 22 days to hatch, and then you're looking at about 12 weeks for, for the, that breed to be worth slaughtering. You don't want them to get much older. Then you're in the stewing hens and all. They're, they're decent. You can take them at eight, nine weeks. They're just going to be small. Doesn't mean they don't taste good. In fact, a lot of like what we think of as heritage breed chickens, they, they're not a great meat producer by volume or your feed return ratio. But they taste really good, especially if you take them young before they get too tough. But if you want to do meat chickens, I really recommend you look at something like Red Rangers or Cornish Cross or something like that. Um, the other thing about chickens, though, with them being easy to brood, it's really easy to get a nice flock, and as long as you have a rooster, hatch some every year, bring them up to that six months, and be culling your birds out at like two and a half years of age as stewing hens, and occasionally replacing a rooster. It's really, really, really easy. And if you get some bantam hens, they tend to go broody. Silkies and bantam cochrans are probably your two best breeds for that. And when they go broody, if you give them eggs, you don't have to do any work. So then you cull your cockerels, unless you want to replace your rooster, and then you select one, and you bring up your girls, your pullets, and... Then you start calling out your older birds so you don't have pets. After about two and a, you know, age of two and a half, um, chickens generally are going to take more in than they'll put out in eggs. They're, they're, they only make a thousand eggs their entire life. They're like a human being. They're born with a certain amount of ovum. And once those are gone, they're gone. So if you have a chicken with a thousand ovum and it gives you 250 eggs in its first season, which is common for high laying birds, especially if you use lights and keep them going. Uh, it's only at 750 left. Well, if it gives you another 200 in your second season, you're down to you know around 500, 550 eggs left, potential for its whole life. And it just is going to drop production. It's not like it's going to give you another 200 and then another 200 and then stop. It doesn't work that way. Uh, by the time they're two and a half, they tend to go way down. So, you know, that is somehow keep track of your, your generations and call out. And this can be said with maybe different time frames for all birds is how you manage them. So I think that chickens are something. I think everybody eats chicken eggs. Everybody uses chicken eggs. We found that people that know duck eggs are great, love them, and prefer them. But a lot of people won't even give it a try. Some people will say, well, I tried them, and they were nasty, and they weren't. 
It's in their head. It's because they knew it was a duck egg. And when you see somebody eat something, you've seen your kids do it. You say, just try it. And they're like, uh, uh, and it looks like they're going to take a piece of poison and swallow it. Like the whole, They're not going to like it, no matter what it tastes like. It tastes like a banana split, and they would say it's nasty because that's how they are. But, you know, if you're sharing eggs or whatever, chicken eggs is something anybody will take. So definitely probably the top animal to start with, if you can have them, and if you can deal with their intrinsic behaviors, and if the noise issue is not really an issue. And this is something I love about the little bantam Cochrans. This is pretty much the sum of their noise. Once in a while. And it's usually when they're kind of like they're they're curious about something or they're upset about something. They just don't seem to make a lot of noise. So it would be real easy, I think, for a lot of people to keep like Bantam Cochran's in a backyard, even in a place where technically you're not supposed to have chickens with a coop and run. You do it so that nobody really knows. And in the neighbor or two that can see, bribe them with eggs. They're cute little eggs. And I'll tell you something I like about the Bantam eggs is the dogs go berserk for some reason. And what I love about the eggs from the Bantams is they are the best eggs in the world, believe it or not, to cook like sunny side up or over easy. Because they're about half the size of a regular chicken egg, which you normally think is bigger is better. But when it comes to cooking like over easy, they're really easy to do and get that yolk perfect. You know, it's just, it just, they're just easier to cook with. And when you're using them for like omelets or baked goods and all, you just use two to one. Uh, so you got this quiet little pet like bird. Doesn't cause a lot of trouble. Doesn't tend to get up on things. Now, they will get so friendly, they will, unless you got somebody to keep them off the porch, they'll get up on the porch. They'll come, I mean, they'll come hang out with you. Like, we'll sit in the back. I actually, there's only three of them, and they don't cause much trouble, so I actually let them up on the porch unless the dogs are out and the dogs keep them off the porch. They'll come up, like, right sometimes, like, right at my feet when I'm sitting out at the, the fire pit or whatever on the porch, and I usually eventually kind of push them off. But, I, you know, they're kind of cool. Um you know, four of those while they're in their peak are going to give you four eggs a day. Um, even in the off season, you get one or two eggs a day. So you might need to keep a few more of them depending on the size of your family. But man, I mean, they're just a great little bird. And again, they go really good with a full size flock because they're such little broody things. They love to raise babies. Uh, and they'll do all the work for you. Uh, next up, ducks. Ducks are the thing that I have the most experience with. i got to be careful here that I don't turn it into a whole duck show and, and end up with the show going way too long. I'll just say that if you go to duckchronicles.com, you can see four different seasons of me taking ducks from a box up to, to full-size flock members. You can see me build out a flock. We used to do commercial eggs, 120, 130 bird flock on our property, rotational grazing, etc. Now we run about 20-odd you know, ducks as just a hobby uh, and for direct production. And we sell our surplus still. We just don't have to, you know, make, you know it's not a lot of work anymore. Uh, basically, we sell enough eggs, pay for everything, and everything we keep is free. And that's a good strategy for chickens and ducks. There are a lot of people that if you tell them you want $6 a dozen for chicken eggs, they're like, I can get them at the store. There's a lot of people you tell them you want $8 a dozen for duck eggs, they're like, well, yeah, 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 I'm fine. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with you. Um, we were able to, to move, uh, about 80 to 90 dozen eggs a week at $8 a dozen at our height. And there were, there were weeks where we had really uber high production that we moved 100, 120 dozen. Um, so there's a market for it, but it was a very specialized market that we had to find. Finding people when you, you know, you, you produce 
six dozen a week and you want a dozen for yourself to sell five dozen, 20 dozen a month, it's, it's not real hard. And what you do is you look for the customer that's selective. This is, I, I want you to run this thing. I don't want you to go away. And yeah, I'll pay $6 a dozen for chicken eggs. And if you can do that, then you can, you know, for every four you sell, you can keep one or two, depending on how good you are at how you do it or what quality of food. But generally, if you're going to get more money, you're going to have to run a better food. Uh, but ducks, man, I'll tell you, we, let's start out with their problems. They like to make a mess. They like to make a mess. I mean, it's their thing. So if it rains and you have a place where water puddles, they're going to go turn it into a mess. They're going to make holes in the ground with their beaks. They're going to mud it up. And so unless you have enough space to account for that, they're probably not for you. Um, they will eat just about anything you will, though they are not as big on going into gardens and destroying things as chickens are. And the bigger things get, the less they like to eat them. They like to eat little stuff. They like to eat little nibs and nubs off of stuff. They don't tend to get up on things. So... I've got a garden right now. We put it in. I was like, I hope it's high enough. I think we're 27 inches off the ground. And I have not had a single duck or a bantam chicken get in there. I guarantee you back when we used to keep, like, you know, red sex links and uh, Egyptian faomies and stuff like that, they would have all been in there tearing up my garden by now. So they, they, they have that trade-off. They're going to make mud mess. They need water. And they don't just need water the way everything needs water. They need to be able to immerse themselves in water. You can use kiddie pools, you can concrete mixing trays, whatever. And if you have a flock of six ducks, this is not a lot of work. But you need to be able to move that water daily or it needs to be on some sort of drain system. Because if it's in the same place every day and you're not dealing with it, let me tell you what's going to happen. That area is going to become disgusting, compacted, over-nutriated, and everything's going to die. So we have to have some way to deal with that. It's not that hard, but you, you need to think of it. Chickens, most people are aware of, you need a coop. You need a chicken coop for chickens. You don't need a coop for ducks. With a small flock, I think it makes sense to train them to a coop. We had a lot of predator problems from one specific predator. Um, it was a coyote that was manged and, and being almost a deranged animal. I mean, it was halfway to chupacabra by the time I put a bullet in it. Um, and it took some effort, and it cost us a lot of birds. We had another time where a fox kind of honed in on our flock, and even though we had electric fencing, this fox was going up a tree and jumping out of the tree into our holding area. Eventually, he went the way of the dodo as well. Since we've moved to a coop solution, and again, the number of birds I had, I don't know how practical that would have been. I would have had to put a bigger coop in. But we have about 20, 23, 22 birds that share a 16 by 10 or 16 by 12 Tough shed that was here when we got here that is our coop. We have not lost a single bird. We've not lost a single bird, and our eggs are much cleaner. So coops, I think, pay big dividends. We put straw and wood chips in for litter. That comes out, you know, twice. We keep do deep litter. So what that means is we put down a layer. It starts to smell. We don't take it out. We put down another layer. It starts to smell. We don't take it out. We put down another layer. It starts to smell. We don't take it out. We put another layer down. That's about six months. After that, it starts to smell. I go in with a, a fork, and I take it all out, and I put it in the compost pit, and we put down a layer. So we only actually take it out about twice a year, and really once a year. It's every six months, so that gets it's twice a year. It depends on how far into the next year you get. But 
I do that with ducks. I would recommend the same thing with chickens. Makes the great, great compost, especially with the pit method. And then they go in there because even though they've had it, now it's all new and it's been broken up and now we got to play with it. And the biggest thing you get though on a duck yield is eggs. Duck is delicious to eat. But again, I'm back to your dual purpose thing. It excels at neither. Jumbo pecking. If you want to grow ducks for meat, do jumbo peckings. I'll throw a little thing about geese here. Geese are great if you can tolerate their attitude. Um, for meat, they're one of the greatest meat sources you will get. But it takes some time to learn how to properly manage geese so that they will lay effectively and brood for you. It's why they're, and that makes goslings expensive. Gos, you, they, you only get eggs for about 60 days a year. They're delicious, by the way. Goose eggs are amazing. It's like pterodactyl eggs, man. Um, but they, uh, they are tricky to get brooding right. Now, once you do, you raise those goslings, 11 weeks you have meat. And it's a good amount of meat. And they can, you can do goslings to meat in 11 weeks from the egg. The day they come out of the egg, 11 weeks later, they are a perfect size for harvest. And you can do it almost 100% on grass if you have the right pasture. So I can't leave them out, but they are kind of specialized. With ducks, again, jumbo peckins. If you want a dual-purpose bird, probably like Silver Apple Yard or Saxony or Cayuga. Those are probably your three best bets. Um, your best layers are your like your 300 runners, and they are terrible meat birds. Your okay layers that are really good layers, but just not great meat birds. Rowan's great. Khaki Campbell's great layers. Great layers. All runners are great. None of them are great meat birds. Runners are terrible. There's almost no, I, I don't even know how they live. Like if you ever have to call a runner, you're like, how do you live? How do you function with this little amount of muscle on your body? Make some great egg birds though, because they don't eat much and they're fast and they can move around easily. And I found runners to be a little less destructive of things, so they're they're a good thing to consider as well. Um, But definitely, if you want to go with a dual purpose, look for a big-bodied breed. And again, your Cayugas, um, your Saxonies, and your Silver Apple Yards. Cayugas are not real hard to get, and they're not real expensive. Saxonies and Silver Apple Yards can be expensive, but that can be good. If you want to sell chicks, my advice is specialize in a heritage breed. Do not mix your flock. Or have a flock that's 50% that breed, and then your other girls can be anything you want, okay? And then only drakes of the breed. That means that everything you have is either a half and half or a whole. And as the chicks age, it's really easy to go, oh, that's a, that's a Saxony. You see where I'm going with that? So that way you can, you can sort out your chicks and you can sell these are known Saxonies or these are known Silver Apple Yards. Uh, or what have you. Silver apple yards, beautiful bird. They're my favorite duck in the world. Terrible meat bird. They're very small frame body, but God, they're beautiful. They're pleasant. They're quiet compared to other ducks. I'll throw muscovies in real quick. Muscovies are amazing. Best tasting meat off a bird I've ever had. Nothing tastes as good as a muscovy. They only lay a couple times, like they lay in pulses of about 60 days, and then they lay almost nothing. Then they lay another pulse of like 60 days, and then almost nothing. Uh, and they do that like three times a year. So there's a lot of non-laying and a lot of like, it's explosive when it happens. You'll often, they'll often double lay in a single day. So you get, you know, for 60 days, one Muscovy might give you 80 eggs. But then you get almost nothing. So they're good, but they have that 
down. That's not always bad. If you get more than you need, you can freeze eggs, you can you can cook and then and and dehydrate eggs, and then you don't have to do any work. They also are great mothers. So if you want to raise some ducks and you don't want to do the work, get some muscovies. And when a girl goes broody, take eggs, give her eggs. Trick with this though. Ducks are very big on, oh, she's brooding. I'm going to give her some more eggs. So what will happen is you have a bird, you give her 12 eggs, you don't check her for a couple days, you go look underneath her, she's got 25. And you have no, now they're all out of time. And you have no idea which ones are the new ones. What we do is we take all the eggs away, we select eggs based on size, bigger eggs tend to do better, that we want to put under a brooder, we set them on a counter at room temperature. They can stay there for 10 days. We collect until we have the number that we want, and we mark them with a Sharpie pen. And then we put them under our broody girl. And that way we can check from that point forward while she's brooding, and if anybody pops eggs under her, we can take those eggs away and leave her the ones that we, we know the timing on behind. Um, the best course of action, if you can, is put a broody girl up where the other ones can't get to her. We generally don't have time or ability to do that on our farm. Uh, moving on, rabbits. Rabbits, I have a whole show I did with Nick Ferguson on rabbits. I will link to it in the show notes if you want to know the husbandry. But I want to give you the highlights of why you want rabbits or why you might. I don't have rabbits. I'm probably not going to get rabbits. So that was a bad way to say it, why you might want to consider rabbits. Number one, if you have three does in a buck that are proven, meaning they will breed when you put them together, and you manage that properly, you can produce as much meat as if you were raising two to three meat goats a year. That's, that's the facts. If you have good pasture with a good clover and grass mix, you can provide the majority of feed to your rabbits with a bag mower for free. Take a bag mower, run one strip out, there's your feed for the next couple of days, provide it to your birds, your bunnies. Okay, They are quick to process once you learn. You can process a rabbit in two minutes or less. I've seen people do it on YouTube where they take friggin' 20 minutes to process a rabbit. I'm like, you have no idea what you're doing. It should not take that long. I'm not going to go into how. It's long to explain and it's easier to watch. When you find someone who can do a rabbit in two to three minutes, do what they're doing. Um, the waste product in rabbit poop is immediately usable. You don't have to compost it. You also can compost it. You can put it into a worm bin. You can do it all. It is almost for a lot of small gardeners. Let's say you have a backyard garden. You don't even want meat rabbits, but you want a great garden. Having a worm bin and one or two rabbits that are pets are almost worth it for the rabbit manure, for the fertility. It is one of the greatest fertility ads that you can have. Um, they are quiet. There's almost nowhere you can't have them. So a lot, of, a lot of places where you can't have ducks or chickens, you can have rabbits. What are they for? They're my pets. Go away, screw off, elsewhere. Thank you. And most people don't complain about them because they don't make any noise. So a small rabbit tree can be a very small footprint, huge high yield of fertility and meat. There is a pelt product too. Uh, they also can pay for themselves. And the best way to, that I have found to raise rabbits for money is don't sell meat rabbits. Sell breeding pairs. So you raise your bunnies up, select a couple that would make good breeding pairs, know their pedigrees, know their genetics, 
and sell them as premium rabbits for people to breed for themselves. Whether they want to breed for the pet trade, whether they, I don't care what they want to breed for. The rabbit is worth more alive than dead. It's, it's crazy. And that means you can sell a lot less, pay for all your feed, you get all the fertility, only thing you have in it is the labor, and it's not a lot of work. Um, no matter where you live, there's probably a rabbit that is adapted to your climate that can do well outdoors. You might need to provide some shade. You definitely need to provide shade in a lot of climates. You might need to provide a little supplemental heat in some. But in general, rabbits almost anywhere in the United States will work. Since they're going to be in a hutch, if you build your hutch right and you make sure rabbits can't reach in and pull bunnies' heads off, I'm sorry, raccoons can't reach in and pull bunnies' heads off, then you are not going to have a lot of predator issues as well. And I'll tell you that when it comes to rabbits and things getting at them when they're in a hutch, it does not take a lot of effort to take like a 25-mile electric fence charger and put a little protective uh, force field around your rabbit hutch. Uh, it's you know, The chargers may be 30 bucks at Tractor Supply. All the materials are another 30 bucks. And if you put a 25-mile charger uh, on, you know, you're probably looking at 100 feet of wire if you go around like a halo top bottom. Um, if a raccoon touches that, it's going to be a flying raccoon. Um, that's a lot of that's a lot of power uh, from a small area. So they're really easy to protect. Um, there's just no reason that they can't be kept. So I just think they're really worthy of consideration. But your products are pellets in the, for fertility or for worm food for more fertility uh, or your, your other product from Rabbit, obviously, is me. And then live sales. There, there's not an egg product there. Moving on, the, the, the rabbit of the poultry world is the quail. The number one bird if what you want is food. And you want to be able to do it where maybe you can't do chickens, you want to be able to do it quietly, and you want to be able to do it fast. I have so much information on quail on the site. I went. I don't keep them anymore, but I went through a couple years of keeping them. I kept them in every way possible. I kept them in, in rack systems. I kept them in quail tractors. I kept them in an aviary. Uh, I don't really know another way to keep them. They're not really a free-range animal. Um, you can process the quail for meat in 30 seconds with no tools. Pop the head off, pop the legs out, rip the breasts out, rip the legs off, pull out the heart and liver, done. I mean, it's literally that fast. You can do it with shears. It'll take about 45 seconds to a minute, and maybe you can do it a little less graphically. But the fact is, bird to ready to cook in 30 seconds to a minute. Even, like, once you do two or three, that's how fast it is. If you've ever processed doves in the field where you pull the breast out, you do the same thing with a quail, except you can also pull out the leg quarters. That's the, the thigh and the, the little drumstick. You can pop them, break the foot off, yank them out. I don't know many other animals you can process that fast. And they give you eggs. Here's where it gets really great. Except for the males, they don't make any noise. And the males make like a... Like that. It's kind of loud, but... Your neighbors will probably not think it's anything to do with you. They'll think it's some wild bird somewhere. And if they're like in a garage or something, they're probably with the door closed, they're not going to hear it. Um, Brad Davies, who's been on the show, he's done some projects with me, raises them in his garage in a four foot by two foot section, and he produces like 20,000 eggs and like a thousand birds for, for meat a year. 
in that little area. Some people don't really like that little area. They want more space, less birds to a rack, whatever. You can do however you want. I have good luck running them in tractors. I have a good luck running them in an aviary. I, I loved running them in an aviary because of the way I designed some of the things in there that was a little complicated from a standpoint of getting some of the eggs where they would lay them. If I put them in there now and started them up again, it would be way easier. There's just no way they can they, – what they were doing is they were laying eggs under some of my wicking beds where like, I had to get on my belly to get the eggs out. That was about the only problem with it. Um, if you had a dedicated aviary just for them, easy peasy. The real exciting part is the speed at which you can produce. So quail take, I think, 21 days to incubate. It's somewhere in that range. You take eggs, you put them in an incubator, 21 days you have baby quail. They are big enough to harvest small at five weeks, and they are perfect at six. So from the time that egg hatches till you have a meat yield is six weeks. They're easy to hatch with a good incubator. They are easy to brew. They're tiny and delicate, but once you know how to do it, they're not hard. They produce eggs starting at seven weeks. If you run lights for them, you can get eggs from an egg a day, about 28 days of the month per quail, consistently for a year, and then they'll molt. If you let them molt, after they grow their feathers back, they'll give you another pretty good year of eggs. By that time, they're pretty big. They make good, you know... Good birds to cook a little longer and slower, though. And since you can make new ones in seven weeks, when you know you're coming up toward your molt date, you take some eggs, you hatch them, you, get, you, you select your new hens, you select your new roosters, you cull out your excess roosters, and you cull all your old birds as soon as your new ones start laying, and you have brand new 28-day-a-month per quail as long as you keep your lighting and your food and your water right. So you get eggs. takes about four to five quail eggs to make one chicken egg in size. Know what? No big deal. All you really need is a quail egg cutter. You can look those up on Amazon. Looks like a pair of scissors with a, like a kind of sharp point on it. Cut the tip off, dump them out. They taste like chicken eggs. But the meat yield is what makes them really exciting to me. They taste like chicken if chicken has flavor. And boy, you know, like a half of a quail breast. Take a knife, cut it off the breastbone. Take a jalapeno, about a quarter of a jalapeno, wrap a piece of bacon around that, about a third of a piece of bacon, stick a toothpick through it, cook that on the grill. Holy crap. I want to go do that right now. I think I have some quail in the freezer. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Anyway, um, just fantastic and fast and easy. And again, except for the males in that thing that they do, they're just, I can't see it being a place where you're not allowed to have them. What are they? They're my pets. Go away. Similar to quail with some advantages and disadvantages, pigeons. I don't know a lot about pigeons other than my Uncle Pete kept them for uh, different reasons. But a pigeon coop, and you allow those birds, once those birds are homed, that means you can let them go, they'll fly, they'll go do their thing, and they'll come back. And what that means is they can go out and forage. You might lose some, but unless you're doing high-dollar racing pigeons or something, oh well. What excites me about pigeons is the opportunity that exists that they are not protected in any way, and there's wild populations pretty much all over the country. Right now, if I wanted to, I could build a pigeon coop or some dovecotes, and I could take a net, and I could go at night and go up under overpasses on the highway system down here, and I could catch wild pigeons. And I could sex them and pair them out and put them in a coop, feed them, and just not let them out. That's all you have to do is 
put them in some like a coop, especially a coop and a fly. That's kind of like a coop and run for chickens, except you know the, the area that's the run has a, a roof. You put them in there, they're not going to be happy. But eventually, you'll start to see them pairing up. You'll start to see them behaving like pigeons again. You'll put food in there, they'll eat it. You'll go near the pen, and they might be like, I don't know about you, but they don't freak out anymore. Kind of when they start doing that, you can open it up, and they can fly out, and they're going to come back. They figured out they've got it made. They're homed. You have eggs, and they lay eggs nowhere near as many as quail, but they lay eggs you know, year-round pretty much. They will tend to raise one set of chicks, lay more eggs, so that just as that one chick or two chicks is about ready to go take care of itself, the other eggs are hatching. So what you generally do with pigeons, it's different than most birds, is each pair needs kind of, think about it like an apartment. They need a space. And you can look up the size and dimension of all this. And they have shelves. Those shelves are where they'll lay their eggs. And then you can take the babies as squabs, which means right before they start to put out all their flight feathers, you take them and you kill them, slaughter them. Uh, well, We're talking about eating freaking food here from, from livestock, right? So that's the, the reality. But at that age, they're really you pluck them. You don't need a plucker. You don't need to scald them. The feathers just come out. You take a, like a paper straw and light it and burn off any of your little feathers that you can't easily pluck. Or you can use a torch to do that if you're good. A uh, little, little butane torch. That's what I use. Um, and, you know, you process your, your pigeons. You can also process them like doves. But kind of the skin is so good on a squab, you know, you do that. Um, and then you've got a meat yield. Plus you've got an egg yield. My I've never had pigeon eggs. My understanding is they taste pretty much like eggs, like any other egg. Again, what makes them exciting is you can acquire them locally. They will forage a lot for themselves. As long as you feed them enough, they'll come back. Easy to expand, and they take care of their own young. So if you want your flock to get bigger, you just let them raise some, sex them, ban them, and go on with life. I'm not going to say a lot more about them. It's something I've flirted with doing a lot, and it's one of those things that anytime I talk about it, my wife says, you have enough going on, and I go, yeah, you're right. Next up, turkeys. I don't have any experience breeding turkeys, brooding tur uh, breeding turkeys, letting them self-brood and raise the next generation of offspring. There are a lot of heritage breeds that are supposedly really good at that, though, and I have no reason to doubt that. Uh, so you can look into that. From a standpoint of meat, if you want to know from me, the easiest thing you can do to produce a large amount of meat, it's broad-breasted turkeys, either bronze or broad-breasted whites. Uh, you're talking about females that in six months will, will generally dress out. Now, this is not live weight. This is when you process it or have somebody process it for you, and you turkey like you buy in a store, your hens, your hens will weigh 28 to 34 pounds. Your gobblers will weigh, and I am not exaggerating, 40 to 55 pounds at six months of age. I raised a bunch a few years ago. I kept three. And I deboned and parted them out, and I ended up with 75 pounds of meat from three turkeys. I did almost no work. Basically, when you brood them for the first couple weeks, they attempt to kill themselves once a day. It's like having a toddler that just started crawling. You're running around blocking their head from going into the corner of the coffee table. right? But by about three to four weeks, they kind of stop trying to kill themselves. By about six weeks... If you have the right property, you can free range them or you can tractor them or you can coop and run them. It's up to you. 
And then they become these little dinosaurs that will follow you around. They don't cause much trouble as long as they can't get over a fence and get away because I've had that happen too. And uh, they just, you just feed them and that, they don't, you don't, if they have food and water, they become like Mack trucks at about six weeks. Unless uh, like a coyote or something kills them, nothing's going to happen to them. My one caveat is the males tend to get really aggressive and start beating the shit out of each other. And uh, something, I was going to raise a bunch of them this year, and something went wrong. And given that COVID happened, it's probably just better that it did. Um, but something went wrong with shipping. But anytime I ever do them again as a pure meat run, I'm going to do hens only. Because, face it, 20, 28, 30 pounds, that's big enough for anybody. That's big enough. I don't even want to cook the damn thing. Like Thanksgiving, we do like one breast and one leg quarter. I mean, that's a lot of meat. Because again, you're talking about a breast half, not not a breast cut in half. The, the cutlet off the breast with no bone. Biggest one I ever had was 11 pounds. Average is about six. Most people don't make a pot roast six pounds. You're talking about a boneless cutlet six pounds. I've had you know six pounds off hens, five and a half six pound cutlets off hens. One side, one side. And people make 12-pound turkeys and consider it plenty big enough. That's the whole turkey bones and all. So turkeys are something I really recommend you look at from a standpoint of a meat production. And I just don't know enough about raising, you know, like your, your heritage breeds. But I find it very attractive uh, with the idea, though, that you might want to really limit it to one gobbler. Uh, because I think the more gobblers you have, the more aggression. And we found with the broad-breasted birds, they were even some of the gobblers were being aggressive and actually killed more than one of our hens. We thought we had some sort of predator. It was weird in the way the damage was being done, and we ended up catching one of the gobblers. And again, you're talking about birds that, you know, when they're they're grown out, they're live weight. You know, guts in alive on the on the on the I was gonna say on the hoof, but it's not really a hoof. But you're like 60, 70 pound animal with long talons and a sharp beak. They can do some damage, so just be careful with that. Last one is fish, and I've, I've done whole shows on fish too, so I don't want to get too deep into this, but I just want you to think about the fact that fish require very little work, and almost all of it can and should be automated. I do manually feed my fish, um, and I do really closely observe whether their feeding response is high or not, um, but any kind of a pond, and you're in the fish business, If you can put a real pond in that's deep enough and big enough to raise fish in, do it. Uh, I do, of course, the timber frame ponds. I build them out of four by fours. I put them together with structural wood screws. They're expensive, but they're beautiful. They're like this beautiful piece of architecture and landscaping, and then they produce food that you can eat. But you can do it a lot cheaper. If you go on Craigslist, you can almost always find above-ground pools that are free or super cheap because people want to get rid of them. And even if you have to spend a couple hundred bucks, 300 bucks for a liner and put a new liner in it, you know, a 24-foot above-ground pool, which is kind of your standard size, has something like 19,000 gallons of water that it holds. My caveat there, if you're going to use the above-ground pool approach, you need to go to a place that's mostly shaded because the water temperature in an above-ground pool is the owner of an above-ground pool that swims in it in August, it's like bath water. It's too hot. So you need to have a lot of shade. You want to have a lot of aquatic growth on the top. But, yeah, you can get one of those for free. 
And, you know, sun is not the enemy by itself. Sun constant all day. So we have our pool outward, Dorothy can sunbathe. But if you were to take and strategically put, let's say you had a building that was going to, this is where I put my big Miyagi pond, my big timber frame pond. You have a building where this is going to get sun during the day up until about 5 o'clock, and then once the sun goes on the other side, it's going to get shade. Well, that works out really good. Um, you need pumps. I mean, it's pretty specialized, but the beauty of this is if you use native fish, it's free. Like when I want more fish, I just go to the stream. I catch some bluegills and green sunfish and bullhead cats and stuff like that, and I just put them in my ponds. And it takes them a few weeks, and all of a sudden they think pellets are the greatest thing in the world, and they'll eat pellets, and they grow up. And when you want a, you want a meal, you throw a hook on a rod, and you go outside, and you you know it's not fishing really, it's catching, because they're trained to eat when you throw food in there. You go to the, I go to the garden, I pull back the mulch, pull a couple worms out, throw them on a hook, bang, boom, bam, you know, and you got a meal. And they get. They grow really fast if you're giving them supplemental feed. But let's say you go away for a week, and you really don't have somebody to watch your place. As long as your power doesn't go out and your pump don't go off, your fish are fine. They can go a week without eating. And if you have minnows and stuff like that in your system, they might feed on that a little bit heavier. But they'll get by. Through your winter season... When your water's below about 50 degrees, you don't have to feed at all. Their metabolism slows down. You're better off not feeding because they're not going to eat that much. I pretty much feed this way. When I'm not sure whether they're going to eat or not, I go out and I throw a really small handful of pellets out, and I give them about five minutes. If nobody eats aggressively, I don't feed them anymore. You know, if that food's if, if they start hammering it pretty good, I'll give them a little more and watch them, and I want them to eat almost all the food within 10 minutes. But once you get into your part of the season where they're going to eat every day, you can set up a timer and an automatic feeder. And as long as you have some sort of backup for power, you can go away for two weeks, nothing happens. Not a lot of other livestock that you can do that with. And then through your, like I said, through your winter, you just turn the feeder off. And if you get some warm days and you keep an eye on your water temperature, you go out and throw them a little bit manually. And when they start eating again, turn the feeder on. And when it gets cool, turn it off. Really, really simple, and man, there's so many other things. If you're doing fish, you can do so many aquatic crops and things like that as well. It opens up aquaponics and all, so I just wanted to kind of throw that in there. So those are the, the backyard livestock, and I just want to, again, kind of frame it in the context of this, this kind of new world that we're living in where we're all actually sacrificing something as Americans together for the first time in the lives of most Americans. And I know people will try to draw parallels to 9-11, but my wife and I were talking about this morning. You know what most people gave up for 9-11? Nothing. In reality, nothing. If you were like me and you were on the road at the time, you might have not been able to fly for a while. You might have got stuck somewhere like I did for a week. It was an inconvenience. I think we were all emotionally hit by seeing that many people die in such a terrible way. And we did give up a lot of our freedoms because we let the government take way too much power. But what I'm saying is give up. Like, no one turned off an F Xbox unless they had a family member they were worried about, and they didn't do it because they had to, they did it because they wanted to. No one had to stay home. No one worried about whether or not they'd be able to get a roll of toilet paper. And within a couple of weeks, life pretty much was normal again. And that's probably, the, if you ask most people, what is the biggest event that's common to others in your lifetime? Most people alive today would say 9-11. 
If you look back to something like people have been around a little bit longer, the Depression of the 70s and all, and still in all, it wasn't anything like that. The Vietnam War, I'm a little bit young to really remember the Vietnam War. I remember the veterans of the Vietnam War um, you know, in, in the late 70s still dealing with a lot of the things that were going on. But unless you went to Vietnam, we didn't have rationing in this country because of the Vietnam War. No one couldn't get something because of the Vietnam War. A lot of people got drafted and had to go, and a lot of people had family members, and they gave up the time with that family member. The family member that went is the one that actually risked their life, that actually had their liberty taken, that actually really made the real sacrifice. I'm not putting down the, 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 the grief in a family when someone goes off to war from your family or the sacrifice the family makes, but in the end that family still goes out to Denny's or still goes out and has a steak. It hurts, and they think about it, but and it only really applies to that family. The rest of us say, oh, it's terrible that they're over there or whatever, but we go on with our lives. To get back to a point where collectively the American people were in something together like they are right now, i got to go back to World War II and the Great Depression, where it affected everybody. World War II, there was rationing. There were things you couldn't buy. I guess the only other time I can think of with rationing was the 70s and the gas shortage. But that just meant you, you got gas on your day. You could still get gas. Real rationing, World War II, and the Great Depression. That's the last time this country was tested collectively. And I think we're seeing some good and some bad come out of this. Because let me tell you what crisis does. People say it brings out the best and the worst in people. No, it doesn't. That's the, that's the result, but that's not what it's really doing. A time of crisis shows you who people really are. It shows you who they really are at their core. And I think what we're seeing right now is, in spite of the fact there's some bad people out there, there's a lot more good people than bad people. We see some of the biggest corporations in the world that we thought of as being the bad guys saying, what can we do to help? Because in the end, those corporations are run by people. Doesn't mean everything they do is good, but mostly what I see out of them, what can we do to help? What can we make? How can we make this better? And we see that from little bitty tiny companies to great big ones. And we see most people, what are they doing? If what I can do to help is just go to my job and go home because I'm essential, that's what I'm going to do. And what if, I, if what I can do most is stay home, then that's what I'm going to do. Is that the right decision? I don't know. But it's the best indication of what we have right now. So it's what most people are just doing. Most people are doing whatever they have to. Most people are showing that there is more good than bad. And we'll see more of the bad, too, because the bad is really bad, where it is. But we'll deal with it. And in the context of things like backyard livestock, I think people right now are starting to understand how much we let go. That the generation that last sacrificed, the World War II generation, my grandma, if someone would have told her she had to give up her garden and her chickens and her goose, she had one goose, That woman didn't ever go a day without being on her knees twice to pray. She worried about her whole family going to hell. She was that religious that you know, she prayed for her family way more than herself. She never had a Sunday or what's known as a holy day of obligation go by without being in that church. To the day she died. If she was one of the most peaceful people you would ever meet. 
I never knew her to do harm to anybody. But I saw her blow a mockingbird out of a freaking hemlock tree because it was singing at 3 o'clock in the morning and she couldn't take it anymore. I have a feeling if you would have tried to take her garden or her chicken coop away from her, you'd have been on the wrong end of that shotgun. Why? She lived during the Great Depression. She lived through the rationing of World War II. And in the 1980s, when I was a kid, she taught me the value of those things in hopes that I wouldn't forget. That is coming back to America right now. And I, I am not an idealist. I'm not going to tell you it's coming back everywhere. But we're getting a glimpse at what those generations fought so hard against. And I think a lot of people who grew up knowing that generation and thinking, ah, they're, you know, they're, they're okay, but they're a little, you know, really, do we have to save all the milk cartons and fill them up with water and freeze our fish in them? Do we, can we not use a Ziploc bag? Do we have to, how many times could, do we have to wash the Ziploc bag before we throw it away, Grandma? How many times? The answer was, until it doesn't work anymore. Do we have to save all the jars? Yeah. Do we have to save all the screws, Grandpa? Do we really need all the extra screws that came with this thing that we put together? Might need it someday. I think we're starting to get a glimpse into the why of that mentality. And I think it's a good thing for America. With that, we've wrapped up the show. I hope you guys enjoyed it today. I'm trying to make this more about what you can do than what you can worry about. That's my goal every day. Uh, the word of the word of the quarter, I guess, is solutions, and backyard livestock is a solution. Um, another thing I wanted to tell you guys, though, is I've got a solution for your dogs and your cats. Uh, and I've brought this around before as an item of the day, and uh, this has been a game changer for me with my dog, Charlie. Uh, every year, he'll get these red marks on his paws or he'll get them like in his crotch it's right about now once it starts to get hot and man I tried everything and I found this stuff called Zymox it's a topical spray it's got hydrocortisone but it's also got four enzymes in it and the enzymes I've looked all of them up all of them have good science behind them of being uh, antibacterial antifungal and, and what have you and this stuff we spray it on them and it goes away And if you read the reviews about this stuff on um, Amazon, you can you know how much some people really love their dogs, man. You can almost hear a person like with some tears in their reviews for what it meant that their dog or his ears or his you know hot spots or whatever went away. That it's it's just that good. Now I can't recommend any health you know any drug for use of anything on any person because I'm not a doctor and this is for dogs, so I'm not suggesting you use it on yourself. But it's a topical spray. And I'm just going to tell you what I and my wife have found. One, when I first started using this, it was several years ago, and I was doing some work with hardware cloth building that aviary I was talking about, and I ended up with these two little holes. It looked like a little mini snake bite on my hand. And I still have a little bitty scar where it was. And I never felt any pain or anything, and I figured I must have poked it, like the wires must have kind of bent closer together because they were really close together. But it looked like a tiny little pit viper bite. And I was like, oh, look, it looks like a snake bite. It's probably a spider. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, it was a spider bite. We don't know what kind, but, I mean, the way it ended up acting and just, like, like this kind of, like, skin dying around it more and more, and I kept putting comfrey on it, nothing would work. I'm like, hmm, I wonder about the Zymox. Sprayed it, immediately stopped it, and within a week it was gone. And it was just getting worse and worse uh, otherwise. 
Um, Dorothy and I have both gotten breakouts with some rashes during keto as your body's discharging toxins and all. And we've even tried hydrocortisone products that are for people and didn't really work that well. This stuff, boom, knocks it out. Fire amp bikes, boom, knocks it out. I'm not suggesting you use it, but I'm just saying that I've used it. And that's that's all I'll say about that. The other thing I'll say is I don't, you know, in spite of the good news that I gave you about COVID going in, I think we're in for a month at least, and then maybe we're going to have some supply shortages as things ramp back up for a while. We're heading into summer and a lot of the climate. If your dog has these problems, I'd get this stuff now. It's shipping like a week out in most markets, and I checked on Amazon. Plenty of time, but that way you have it. I believe we should all have not just first aid kits for our for selves, but but defects. That's doggy first aid kits. This belongs in it. Check this stuff out. And always, please remember, when you're going to shop online, if you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, you can find all these reviews and everything. It's all stuff I use, I own, I recommend, only because I spent my own money on it. But no matter what you buy, if you start your shopping there, you help support the show and the work that we do. Also remember, the Members Support Brigade is on sale. Discount code 25 bucks until these lockdowns end, at least till the national recommendation ends. If New York City is still locked down or something, I'll probably take it away. But until that ends, I'm keeping it on sale for 25 bucks. With the discounts, it will pay for itself, and you'll support the show. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Uh, song of the day today is one of my favorite songs, and it really, to me, this is a song that talks about, it doesn't talk about, makes the point about how people mature over time and things that they learned that they didn't realize they learned stick with them. Maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Here's what I mean by that. When this song came out in the 1980s, I was a teenager. Um, if you'd asked me about kind of the plight of the Native Americans in the United States, I would have known something about it, and I would have thought it was a bad thing, but I also really didn't really care because it was a hundred years ago or more that it happened, and there's nothing I can do about it. I'm just a poor kid from the coal region. Um, kind of a fatalism. But I would have at least known. If you ask me about Ab Aborigine Australia, I've been like, oh, those dudes I saw on the National Geographic, yeah, they're cool. I would have had no idea that, it, 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 I should have, but I mean, just you're a teenager. You don't think about stuff like this. I would have had no idea that basically in Australia, the same thing was done to Native Americans here, was done to the Aboriginal peoples in Australia. I didn't know that that's what this song was about. I knew when they said 45 degrees in the Western Desert in this song, that that was centigrade, and that meant that it was not 45 degrees the way. I thought it was hot. I didn't know that meant 113 degrees Fahrenheit. I didn't really understand this song at all. I just thought it was an awesome song. I love the guy's vocals. I love the sound of it. That Australian thing that was going on with his accent, the the beat, the, the whole. It was just a great jam song. I mean, this was a song that was on you know some of my mixtapes that were just driving music. Go out to the river fishing. Yeah, fair, fair. Like, yeah. no idea at all. No idea that this song was about the rights and a territory of not just Aboriginal people, but a specific group of Aboriginal people that were some of the last to be pulled in out of their own lands and forced to live in a different way and giving them back land. And some of, some of that actually had happened. I didn't know that. But here I sit almost, what, 35 years later? Still like the song? Now I know all that. And now that song means that to me. I think that says something about artists that put out things like this that are deep and meaningful, that even if that song, when it's released, or that poem, or anything, anything an artist puts out that's deep like this, 
even if it is just accepted as it's good, with no real understanding of what it's all about at the time that it's put out, doesn't mean that even the people that didn't get it then won't ever get it. And real art, real music, especially if it's good, is timeless. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. The broke, the bloodwood and the desert oak, holding wrecks and boiling diesels, steam at 45 degrees. The time has come to say Zen.